Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by Stephen Markman, who is a justice on the Michigan State Supreme Court, also a teacher here at the college. You teach a course on constitutional laws you've done for a number of years. And before we jump into the subject of your lecture, which is on freedom of speech, I want to ask you a little bit about the Michigan State Supreme Court. There's some fundamental differences between how the Supreme Court in Michigan operates as opposed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of the biggest is you're elected. Is that a good idea to elect our judges? Well, I think there's good arguments in favor of election and against election. But I also think there's good arguments in favor of lifetime tenure and against lifetime tenure. So I think there's got to be a balance in there somewhere. I think. Um, the strengths of a system of election is that you can't exercise the kind of power that we generally see courts arguing or uh, exercising these days for extended periods of time, plus periodically uh, justices and judges throughout the state of Michigan have to go among the people and explain their decisions and discuss their approaches to the law, and I think that's all very healthy. On the other hand, there is a concern that um, there's some diminished sense of independence that a judge has who has to be looking ahead to an election in, in X number of years. Plus, there's also a concern that when you have to run for election periodically, as we do not only in Michigan but in most states of the Union, that the necessity to raise money in order to communicate um, you know, why you're different from your competitor and why the voters ought to consider selecting you rather than your competitor, competitor opens up the possibility for conflicts of interest when you later have to make decisions. In my experience, all the justices with whom I've sat on the Michigan Supreme Court are people of great honor and integrity, but there's a, an appearance question that often rears its head as to whether or not their decisions are possibly influenced even in small ways by the need to raise money. Again, I think there's no evidence whatsoever that my colleagues are significantly influenced in any way by that sort of thing, but people periodically raise that question, and it's a, a troubling thing for the integrity of any judicial body that those questions are even raised. This is a normal practice in the states to elect members of a state Supreme Court. Why do most states do this, but we don't do it at the federal level? It's a normal practice in just about every state of the Union. Well, I wonder whether or not our founding fathers, looking at the great increase in influence and decision-making responsibilities that courts have undertaken for themselves over the course of the last two centuries would be amenable today in the year 2016 to a lifetime appointment to exercise this kind of enormous influence. Um, again, uh, the courts were once viewed as the least dangerous branch, and today I think most of us can agree that the courts have undertaken far, far more responsibilities than they once undertook. And you think elections might begin to correct that? Well, I don't know that it's elections so much that would correct that. Another option is to have a single term of office so that somebody who's elected to a state court or appointed to a federal court serves a term of years, a single term of years, as opposed to serving for the rest of his or her life. I mean, there's nobody in the executive or the legislative branch who has that guarantee. It's only in the judicial branch. And I think when courts limit themselves to the traditional exercise of the judicial power, there's some argument in support of that. 
but um, there are many people who feel that increasingly courts have usurped elements of the executive and the legislative power, and to the extent that there's some truth in that, it concomitantly becomes the case that courts shouldn't be serving lifetime tenure any more than the legislative and executive branches should be. One more question about the Michigan State Supreme Court. There's seven members. The U.S. Supreme Court has nine members. Is seven better? Is nine better? I don't know that you can say one is better than the other. Obviously, when you have seven justices or nine justices, there's going to be a considerable debate, and that's reflected in my court. Um, we've got seven good people, all of whom are independent in their thinking, and there's no significant case in which we don't have considerable debate. And um, I'm sure that's true in the U.S. Supreme Court as well. So I don't know that there's any great difference between having seven and nine justices. Most state courts have seven. Some have nine. Some have five. And I don't know that there's any clear indication that one is a better format than another. As we're having this conversation in the fall of 2016, there are, in fact, eight justices. There is a vacancy on the Supreme Court because of the death of Justice Scalia. Can a court operate down one seat for an extended period of time? Have you ever had to do that in Michigan with maybe six justices for a period of We've time? We've had to do it only for very short periods of time. Obviously, there's some some benefit ha to having an odd number of uh, judges or justices simply because you don't have any tie votes there. But it's not the end of the world when you do have a tie vote on the other hand either. Uh, when you have a tie vote, it generally means that whatever the prevailing view was on the next lower court, the intermediate uh, appellate court, will prevail. And I don't know if that's a good idea to have that indefinitely, but for a temporary period of time, I think most courts can survive that. Okay, let's jump into free speech okay. now, the subject of your lecture. And you began your lecture by, by, by describing all the things the First Amendment does not protect. And there's this long list. And one of the things you said, it does not protect <coughs> obscenity or pornography. Now, you could have fooled me because it seems like everywhere I look, there's obscenity and there's pornography. You turn on your television, you go on the, on, on the Internet. It's all around. Uh, it seems like that kind of speech is actually fairly well protected. Well, some people think when they look at the language of the First Amendment talking about protections uh, for freedom of speech that any kind of utterance, any kind of speech coming from one's mouth is necessarily protected uh, by the Constitution. However, the First Amendment talks about the freedom of speech. And just like several other amendments to the Constitution, the freedom of speech refers to a particular American freedom of speech that actually preceded the Constitution. It's that particular freedom of speech, the freedom of speech, that's reflected in the First Amendment. And that freedom of speech had a number of limitations. As you say, I talk about some of those in my presentation. For example, you're not protected if you talk treasonously. You're not protected if you give away military secrets, and you're also not protected for what the Supreme Court considers to be obscenity or pornography. Obviously, reasonable people can disagree on what exactly comp comprises obscenity or pornography, but to the extent that that kind of communication satisfies the Supreme Court's interpretation of obscenity or pornography. It's not really considered to be the kind of speech that's protected by the First Amendment, and it can be outlawed and forbidden. So you said the word the in the First Amendment matters, the freedom of speech, as opposed to merely freedom of speech. Explain that a little bit. Why is that article, the, 
freedom of speech so important? Well, I think it's important because it makes clear that the freedom of speech that's at the core of our First Amendment is something that preceded the First Amendment. It wasn't invented or devised by the First Amendment. So the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It says, Congress shall make no law. Does the First Amendment not apply to states and counties and localities or public schools and the rules that they might make? Well, that's a good question, and I always ask my uh, students in class, um, I provide them with an illustration of a, of a state or locality obviously depriving individuals of the freedom of speech that we understand, for example, allowing Democrats or Republicans to speak on the lo front lawn of our Capitol, but not the other party. And um, they always look at it through traditional First Amendment eyes until I point out to them, as you've just said, that the First Amendment only protects against Congress abridging that freedom of speech. Um, it wasn't until the 20th century that on the basis of one of our later constitutional amendments, the 14th Amendment ratified in the 1860s in the wake of the Civil War, that uh, an idea began to take hold within our constitutional interpreters that the, the, the protections of the Bill of Rights, including the protection of the First Amendment, were not limited to the federal government, but also limited uh, state action, actions by the, uh, the states. And it's only because of that doctrine, usually referred to by shorthand as the incorporation doctrine, that the protections of the Bill of Rights, including, as I say, the First Amendment's uh, protections concerning religion and speech were also extended to the states as well as the federal government. So you, you spoke in So the Congress today means Congress, neither Congress nor the states can, can do what the First Amendment forbi forbids. Does it mean like all lawmaking bodies in the country? Essentially all lawmaking bodies, that's right. Okay. So you spoke about this Johnson case, which was a state law in Texas about about flag burning and uh, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturned it, said it's unconstitutional. And so Congress responds with the Flag Protection Act and then the Supreme Court uh, says you can't have, that's unconstitutional too, so you can't have that law either. Does the Supreme Court always get the last word on what is constitutional? Well, they get the last word on what uh, the words of the Constitution mean, but there's another chapter that you didn't mention that, occur that occurred after the Congress attempted to enact a new Flag Protection Act. The, the, the Johnson case, of course, focused upon a state protection for the flag. Congress attempted its own protection that was worded slightly differently. The Supreme Court struck that down just as they had struck down the initial law. And then there was one of the checks that was sought to be exercised in response to that second decision, and that was a constitutional amendment. And on at least three or four occasions over the next decade, the House of Representatives proposed a constitutional amendment that would have reversed the Texas versus Johnson case and allowed laws to protect fla against flag burning. Unfortunately, if um, one is inclined to believe that Texas versus Johnson was decided wrongly, the Senate never concurred with the House's proposed constitutional amendment, so the states never had a chance to attempt to reverse Texas versus Johnson. There were a number of close votes in the Senate, 
but on several occasions it was that second legislative body that stood in the way of a constitutional amendment. So a constitutional amendment is one of the checks on the Supreme Court. Another check, of course, is just what we're witnessing these days, the election of a president committed to appoint justices who may have a different perspective. Um, those are the principal checks and balances, and of course, uh, a further check is that uh, the court itself can be persuaded that its prior decisions were wrong, and the addition of one or two new justices on the court may well prompt a reconsideration of an earlier decision. Short of a constitutional amendment or a reconfiguration of the Supreme Court and its membership, what can Congress do if it has a different interpretation of the Constitution as compared to the justices? Well, that's one of the great questions in contemporary or mod modern constitutional life. I mean, to the extent that courts increasingly introduce their own ideas of what the Constitution ought to mean, as opposed to relying upon traditional interpretations of the words and intentions of the drafters, you put the Congress in an increasingly, increasingly untenable situation in which the Constitution has in significant and subtle ways been changed, and yet there's nothing they can do to restore the status quo that existed before those decisions other than the extremely complicated and cumbersome and extended process of altering the words of the Constitution. It's extraordinarily difficult, in other words, to exercise the Article V procedures of the Constitution to modify that Constitution, but it's not quite so difficult to get five justices together to say that the Constitution means something that it's never before been understood to mean. Let's it's a very asymmetrical process we have. Maybe elections of justices would, uh, would, 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 would change that. Uh, let's talk about the Citizens United case, a recent Supreme Court ruling. It's often talked about as a campaign finance case, because it involves uh, uh, how, how we pay for political ads and so forth. But isn't it actually a free speech case? I think it's an extraordinarily important free speech case. I agree with you. I mean, the issue in that case was whether or not the Congress could enact, could enact a campaign reform law that essentially prohibited uh, businesses and labor unions from issuing campaign-oriented advertisements within, I think it was 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election. In other words, this law, in the interest of campaign integrity, basically limited the kinds of very core, f the kind of First Amendment communications that were at the core of the First Amendment. Communications discussing whether or not to elect Joe or to, defe to defeat Jim those were suddenly said to be unlawful if done within a certain period of days before primary and general elections. In other words, in precisely those, at, at precisely those times when the public was most interested in those kinds of communications. So in the second presidential debate... And in Citizens United, of course, they, they struck down those limitations and right. said that the... Constitution protected those kinds of core political communications. But it remains a live political issue. And we're having this conversation in the fall of 2016. There's a presidential election coming up. We don't know how that's going to turn out. Many of our viewers will know how that turned out when they watch this. In, 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 the, in the second presidential debate, 
of 2016, this town hall format between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton said, I would want to see the Supreme Court reverse Citizens United and get dark, unaccountable money out of politics. I remember a time when candidates or presidents were supposed to say, I don't have a litmus test for judges. I want competent officials, this sort of thing. That's changed, hasn't it? We're now speaking openly about cases we like and which ones we want reversed, and we're going to choose our judges this way? Well, I didn't see the entirety of that statement. It sounds to me like um, um, Hillary Clinton may be on the right side of, 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 of what she said in the sense that she's simply giving her own personal view of things and not committing herself to only appointing justices who share her view on that issue. I don't know, I'd have to look at the entirety of the statement, but I don't see anything wrong with candidates indicating that they agree or disagree with decisions. But the idea of saying that I'm only going to put somebody on the bench who shares these values and these perspectives, um, I think that becomes increasingly difficult. But I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing more and more statements uh, of that sort. In other words, if we have one of the candidates prevailing in November, and as you say, we don't know sitting here today who that person's going to be, the First Amendment may end up saying one thing about the freedom of speech. And if we appoint someone, if we elect someone else to the presidency and he or she appoints someone else to the court, uh, the First Amendment may mean something completely different, radically different. And I take your point about the importance of parsing the language here, exactly what they're saying, but certainly I think a lot, what a lot of people heard was, I'm going to appoint justices who will reverse Citizens United. Uh, I thought that was, in a way, refreshingly honest, because it seems like in the past when we talk about no litmus tests, the politicians aren't quite telling the truth. They're, they're, they're maybe more concerned with these kinds of things than they let on. Well, I think that your use of the term litmus test is, is a good one in the sense that each of the two parties seems to have what's increasingly a litmus test on the issue. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. I mean, it's perfectly appropriate, it seems to me, for parties and individual members of those parties to have strong views on, on heated and contentious issues, but once you get to the point of saying that our Constitution is going to be one interpreted by a justice or a judge who is only going to go in one direction or the other direction, as opposed to one who's going to have certain values by which he interprets the Constitution, I think there becomes increasingly a problem. Last question, we're running out of time. Uh, subject of hate speech. We're seeing efforts by universities to, to ban what they consider hate speech a number of countries try and do this. Canada tries to do it. You cannot incite hatred uh, against a group. Does the First Amendment protect hate speech? Well, I think the threshold question even before that is what is hate speech? There's really no consensus or agreement on what hate speech is. Um, to many people, hate speech is something that's simply politically incorrect or speech which makes one uncomfortable or speech within, within, with which one disagrees strenuously. Um, so I don't know that we have any clear understanding of what hate speech is. However, to the extent that there's some consensus on what hate speech is, and I won't repeat the words that we probably all understand to be hate speech, um, 
I am concerned about this slippery slope of saying the First Amendment doesn't protect those kinds of things. I mean, I think there's a lot of other informal and private sanctions that are appropriately directed toward persons who, you'd ha who use hate speech in contemporary life. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the government defining what's within the limits of hate speech and therefore forbidden and what's outside those limits. Stephen Markman, thank you very much. We are out of time. This concludes week five of Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. To learn more about our online courses, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.